Welcome to another episode of Life Words Q&A. It's uh, our weekly podcast with David Ray discussing all matters of faith and life. And uh, great to be with you, David. Welcome once again to um, Life Words. Thanks, Andrew. Now, uh, if you would like uh, to uh, revisit David's discussion with Adrian Plass, I know you enjoyed that conversation very much, David. Yep. Uh, you can find it at hope1032.com.au. It's a, it's a half an hour discussion with Adrian Plass, UK author. You can uh, watch uh, the video interview on the website. And uh, soon you'll be able to download uh, the Q&A special podcast with David and Adrian. But right now, our first question submitted by you is one of my favorite verses is Romans chapter 8, verse 1, which says, We have no condemnation. Does that mean we ought never to feel guilty, David, about what we do or say? Or is it wrong to be guilty? Well, there's two sorts of guilt. Um, there's healthy and unhealthy guilt. Uh, true moral guilt is actually healthy in that it recognises our wrongdoing before God and uh, drives us to seek pardon. I mean, there's many people today who would say any sort of guilt is wrong, but that, that, that's silly. I mean, there are, we do do wrong, and uh, even if you're not a Christian, I think you have to admit that you do wrong, and, and guilt is actually a good thing if it, if it is based on an actual act of wrongdoing and that it drives you to seek mercy or pardon and so on. So from a Christian point of view, true moral guilt is very, very healthy because it acknowledges realistically that, as the Bible says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and so on. But it drives us to God to seek pardon. But unhealthy guilt is when we blame ourselves for things which are not our fault and heap condemnation on ourselves when we don't deserve it. So true moral guilt is if um, I do something which is actually objectively wrong and I seek mercy and pardon and forgiveness for it. Uh, but unhealthy guilt is when I haven't really particularly done anything wrong but someone else accuses me of something or my own conscience falsely accuses me of something and uh, therefore I, I, I feel condemned there's a difference here in the in in the um, in Christian vocabulary between conviction and condemnation. Conviction is good in that the Holy Spirit, as it were, taps you on the shoulder and says you've done wrong, but there's grace and mercy awaiting you if you turn from that wrongdoing and seek grace and mercy. Condemnation is comes from the evil one. The, the evil one is not tapping you on the shoulder. The evil one is pointing an accusing finger at you and saying, you are a terrible person. You've done this wrong. There's no hope for you. What con conviction actually is uncomfortable, but it liberates you to seek grace and mercy and a fresh start. Condemnation crushes you. It puts you down, um, resulting in a feeling of shame and uh, hopelessness. And that sort of guilt is crushing um, rather than liberating. So there is a difference. So Romans 8.1 is saying there's no condemnation. It's saying you have hope, you have mercy, you have grace, you have pardon. Um, it's not saying you, you, you've never done anything wrong because Paul's already dealt with that in the early chapters of Romans. He says, yes, you, you all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, uh, but hey, there's a remedy for it. And yet when Paul gets to Romans 8.1, he's saying, hey, um, so don't condemn yourself. If you're in Christ, if you've received his mercy and forgiveness, you are not condemned. On the last day of judgment, when he comes to judge the world, you are already not condemned. It doesn't mean to say you've never done anything wrong, but that wrongdoing has been covered by the death of Christ for you. Condemnation doesn't come from God. 
condemnation doesn't come from the Holy Spirit. Condemnation comes from the evil one to Christians who feel, I've done this terrible thing, therefore God has turned his back on me. No, 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 he hasn't turned his back on you. You might have done that terrible thing. You might need to turn from it. But God's mercy and grace expressed in Jesus is actually sufficient for it. Over the last couple of years, uh, a female author from the, U- uh, the U.S., Brene Brown, has um, become has risen through some TED Talks that she did on shame and vulnerability. Mm. And uh, I know that they've become very popular uh, books uh, to help people overcome the, the, the m- massive effect that shame can have on your life. Oh, yes, yes. So, See, sh- sh- shame, is, is, shame can be sort of a slightly different character in a sense because um, one argument can be or one definition can be guilt is when you are convicted of a particular thing that you have done whereas shame is more to do with the person you are so guilt can be that healthy thing but uh, I suppose there is such a thing as healthy shame in, 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 in a certain way but shame is I believe a far more thoroughgoing term which really does crush you um, guilt says I am a person who has done the wrong thing. Shame is I'm a bad person, and that's different. Yep. You're listening to LifeWords Q&A. Uh, David, our second question is, Jesus seems to say that we're in trouble if all speak well of us. But then again, the Bible seems to see us as people who are attractive to others. How do we reconcile these two different things? Well, again, it, it, as always, Andrew, the context is very important, the context with which things are said. Now, Jesus, when he says, um, woe to you if all speak well of you, in the context, he's mentioning the Old Testament prophets. And in the Old Testament era, the false prophets, the ones who basically, the tame prophets, the one who said basically, well, what's popular opinion say? Well, therefore, I'll support it. They were the sort of people who everyone loved because the, the false prophet said, yeah, she'll be right, no problems, the nation's going to prosper, God loves you, don't repent. And so, of course, their message was very attractive. And they were seeking popularity. And Jesus is saying, don't seek popularity the way these false prophets did uh, because they were seeking popularity simply to advance their own comfort and their reputation and so on. Um, But he's not advocating that we go out and intentionally cause offence either. Our lives are to be attractive so that others can see Jesus in us. So what I think he's really talking here about motivation. Um, what is your motivation in life? Is your motivation in life to serve and follow Jesus? Well, serve and follow Jesus in such a way that, that you trust that people will be attracted to Jesus through your ministry and through your witness. Don't go out and intentionally causing offence. But at the same time, if you are to live not in order to cultivate popularity, but live in order to follow Jesus. What I think the Bible says is you're going to get some popularity because some people will look at you and say, well, isn't that wonderful? Uh, You know, you are a wonderful person and they are attracted to you and that's a good thing. But Jesus also says, the Bible says, that, that, that we are the light of the world, but darkness hates the light. So even as we do our best to be attractive, and I think that's a good thing to do, some will reject us. But the bottom line here is, and getting back to that question, is your aim in life is not to win popularity. Your aim in life is to follow Jesus. And I think the Bible seems to indicate that sometimes following Jesus means you'll cop some flack because darkness hates the light. But don't dare go out 
and simply march into the culture and the world of our day and say, right, I'm, I'm going to stand up for the light and I'm going to cop all this flag. No, you may cop flag. But then again, you may have a number of people attracted to your warm and gracious Christian witness. So motivation is important. Your motivation is not to be popular. Your motivation is to follow Jesus. When you follow Jesus, occasionally you might be popular, but occasionally you'll cop flag. Thanks, David. You're listening to LifeWords Q&A. And uh, if you've got a question, please email David, lifewords at hopemedia.com.au. David, our final question for uh, this podcast is, a member of my extended family has just become a Christian. He's been told he has to give up smoking because Christians shouldn't smoke. How true is that? Well, um, there's, there's no specific mention in the Bible of the matter of smoking. A lot of the times people, certainly in earlier days, condemned a lot of actions and activities and practices when there's actually no biblical warrant for it. I mean, it's, it's more by implication. Now, I think, I think the business of smoking is also a matter of implication. Um, if you, you go right through the Bible, and you're not going to find a biblical, implica- a biblical injunction to, you know, don't smoke. Um, the argument against smoking is, is obvious, that it's more soundly based on health considerations. And if you then say, well, how biblical is that? Well, it's biblical in the sense that God has made your body, and I think there's a general biblical principle, care as much for the body as you can. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. So um, does smoking, uh, in fact, um, you know, damage something that God uh, thinks is valuable? And there's a lot of evidence to say that smoking does damage your body. And Christians could therefore validly argue, well, why are you doing something that does damage your body. Now, of course, by the same, uh, by extending the same argument, you could say, well, well, don't overeat, uh, and or do more exercise, or don't drink too much, and all, uh, all this sort of thing. Uh, don't eat too much fatty food, and all this, because it's the same sort of principle. Take care of the body which God has given you. But there's actually no biblical verse to um, to to say to this person, um, uh, don't smoke. So I think telling that person not to smoke because they're a Christian, um, might be stretching things a bit far if it's seen to be a hard and fast rule, um, because since it's not specifically forbidden in Scripture, um, it's, um, it's, a, it, it's, it's a little bit tricky. But, but, but smoking is an issue on health grounds and out of respect for our body. Um, I think, um, you know, a person should be urged not to smoke. The other thing I'd say about that is that, that sometimes when a person, this, this questioner says, has just become a Christian and has been told to give up smoking, well, hang on, I think you, it often takes a while to shed old habits. I know of people who have smoked and then become Christians and it's taken them some years to finally say, well, I'm going to give it up on Christian as well as health grounds. So let's not expect overnight change in every area of life. And also note, too, that some fine Christians, such as one of my heroes, C.S. Lewis, smoked. Um, So, yes, we need to warn people about the health hazards, but you have to stop short of making an actual law. You see, many things are advisable or not advisable. But don't make everything a strict law, and particularly with new converts who are concerned, don't, don't expect everything to change overnight. You're listening to LifeWords Q&A. Great to have your company. If you would like to uh, revisit previous episodes, uh, hop over to hope1032.com.au and search for LifeWords Q&A. You'll find uh, many, many previous episodes tackling all manner of questions. Do we take the story of Noah and his ark literally? Well, there are problems taking it literally. We've all seen 
perhaps um, children's Bibles and children's storybooks showing Noah and his family with all these animals on an ark. And, well, we can excuse that as a bit of um, um, symbolism and, and liberty with the truth, but the fact is you have to say in measuring the ark, which is a fair size, but would all animals fit? Noah was told to take two animals onto the ark that he was told later to take clean animals as, as well, perhaps. Um, look, I'd have to say that, come on, not all, not all animals in the known world are going to fit. So there's a little bit of flexibility there in the language that's been used. There's pretty good evidence that elsewhere in the world, getting off the animal situation here, there's pretty good evidence that elsewhere in the world people weren't all wiped out. I think anthropologists who've got good judgment can actually testify to that. So, um, and there's no good evidence for a worldwide flood. Now, immediately as I say that, there'll be many people who'd say, oh, yes, there is, yes, there is, yes, there is. Well, I'm sorry, I'm going to leave that to the arguments of the geologists and anthropologists and so on. But there are Christian people, Christian scientists on each side of that that would argue one way or the other. But I, I'm going to say, for one, that I think there's pretty good evidence that elsewhere in the world people weren't all wiped out and there's no good evidence for a worldwide flood, even though there's evidence for a localised flood. Um, that, that therefore, that story of Noah and the ark, that the flood wiped out the whole world and every single animal was brought on the ark, is not to be taken literally, but it's rather to, 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 to um, explain it in terms of, look, Noah was talking, or the writer of the Genesis was writing about the world as they knew it. Um, the, the whole world was wiped out. Well, yes, that's the world we knew about. He didn't know about Australia or South America or South Africa or China or whatever. Um, so they're not lying. They're not, they're not misleading us. They're just describing in, in language of their day just what it seemed to be like, that there was this huge flood. And did Noah take absolutely every single animal? I suspect it's more likely that he took a representative group of animals on board the ark with him um, to to preserve animal creation as well as human creation. Now, that's that's all debated. I I, I know all that, but look, a couple of things. But I don't want to be seen as simply explaining difficult bits away. Uh, I'm not one of those people who says, well, I can't possibly understand that or some scientific textbooks are written in such a way, therefore we can't believe the Bible. No. Look, I believe God is able to do the supernatural. Jesus did the miracles he, he performed. He did rise from the dead. Um, so I, I don't want to explain the difficult bits away. But at the same time, beware of assuming the Bible is written only in terms of literal truth. It tells the truth, but through stories and metaphors and parables. Sometimes we have, uh, in our day, because we've got certain standards of historical accuracy and scientific accuracy, we want to have the Bible speak to us in those terms. But it doesn't. The Bible is speaking in pre-scientific terms. It's telling us the truth. But we've got to decide carefully just how it is telling the truth. And I think to be able to say, well, somehow or other, Noah managed to cram absolutely every animal on earth in, in, into, into a, a box-like vessel of the size that it was, I think, no, that's not so much miraculous. That is silly. That is, that is folly. Um, that is not just simply denying natural law. Uh, that, 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 that is going even beyond that. You see, I personally think the essence of the story of Noah is, is quite straightforward. God judged human wickedness and yet preserved a remnant. And the, Bible, the biblical story tells us that. There was a lot of wickedness in the world, and God said there is going to be judgment on that wickedness, but hey, the judgment is not going to be so exhaustive as to be wiping out the human race. In other words, 
Noah and the ark tells us God acts against sin, but also spares sinners. And with this in mind, we've got two non-literal interpretations open to us. One is that the writer simply used a familiar story of a regional flood to describe God's judgment and salvation. And there are many in the ancient ancient Near Eastern stories that testify to such a flood. Um, But the other is that Noah did really build an ark to survive a real flood. In other words, it was a real Noah and was a real ark to survive a real flood, though local rather than universal. And he took a selection of local animals on board as a more or less token gesture to symbolise the fact that God wanted to preserve non-human life as well. And I, for one, can live with either of those interpretations because I think the truth that God is trying to convey to me uh, is the most important thing. And trying to sort of figure out how every animal fitted in the ark or whether the flood extended to Australia or something is to me well, that others can argue that, but to me, it's not relevant. So, David, uh, there'd be a number of people that would be listening and say, David, I totally disagree with you that, you know, I believe that creation was in seven days, and if God is God, he could do that if he wanted to, all that kind of stuff. You're also saying, well, you know, uh, you have to read the Bible from a perspective that there are metaphors and stories to communicate a truth, and there is also historical fact in the in the person of Jesus and all that kind of stuff. So you have to use your brain. You have to use your common sense, your wisdom. Um, how does that play play out from your perspective? I mean, in terms of just using the wisdom, you know, the facts, as you say, you know, if you some things are silly to believe in. So can you help me understand using your intellect, using your God-given um, reasoning, and and just how that blends with what you're reading and the need for faith. Yeah, look, it, it, it's a complex issue, Andrew. And just in spending a couple of minutes I did with Noah and the Ark, oh, dear me, there's, there's a lot more complexity to do it than that. But just taking up one little phrase you used there, God is able to do everything because he's God. No, he, no he's not able to do everything. I'm sorry. Yep. This is one of those silly things that sometimes people come out with. Well, of course God could fit absolutely every animal in the Ark. No, I'm sorry. That is that is not sort of a statement of faith. That's a statement of silliness. Now, fair enough, people could say, well, the dead people don't get raised, so therefore didn't Jesus didn't get raised. No, no, I'm not saying that because God is able to, as it were, suspend natural laws, even the law of death, and suspend natural laws so that Jesus could walk on water and multiply loaves and fishes, which I believe he literally did because the Gospels are sober historical narratives. Uh, I believe all that. But you see, then to say, for example, God could have... Um, for example, fitted absolutely, you know, thousands of animals on an ark of that size. I say, no, that, that that is silly because God, it's a bit like people can say, well, of course God can create a square circle. No, he can't because that's nonsense. It's nonsense. Or if, if we're saying God is capable of doing everything, well, is God capable of not being God? No, of course he's not. So in other words, we've got to sort of get through this God can do everything. And therefore, yes, we have to use our brains and our intellects. And, and I, I, I don't want to disturb people's faith, far from it. But at the same time, I want to guard them against some sort of faith which is actually folly. Folly, um, I know the cross has talked about foolishness in a different context and so on, but I'm talking about here, yes, we need to look at the evidence of good science and, and so on and so on. Not that science dictates to us, but that the Bible is written in such a way that we are to engage with our intellects and with what 
good human research can provide so that we'll have a deeper understanding of the truth. So I want to avoid a simplistic understanding of the Bible, which I think leads to misunderstanding of it, um, but also to avoid having the Bible basically subject to, you know, the, the whims and the wishes of, um, of, of, of science and so on. Uh, so, so I think it, it, it is one of those complex issues to what extent do we take the Bible literally? And I would want to say, as soon as you believe that the hills don't clap their hands, as soon as you believe that you don't pluck out your eye if it offends you, you have stopped taking the Bible literally, and that's a good thing. Uh, as soon as you re- believe that Jesus spoke in parables and that um, there is poetry in the Bible, then as soon as you believe that, then you, you are using your intellect. You are looking at the scriptures and saying, what sort of literature is this? And I believe the early chapters of Genesis are prehistoric sort of literature. They're conveying truth. Of course they're conveying truth. Um, but in what form? Now, the, finally, though, I would say that, for as you mentioned, there'll be many Christians who'd say, no, 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 I firmly believe in a seven-day creation, a, a literal seven-day creation. I firmly believe in the absolute literalness of absolutely everything in Noah and the Ark. I'd want to say, I'm not going to argue with you. I really, truly am not. I'm not going to say you're a foolish person and so on and so on. I'm not going to say that, but I'm saying, yes, you believe that, but please, please, please don't adopt the moral high ground in your literalness and say this is the only way to interpret the Bible. That is my problem uh, with some of the people who take all this literally, that they as it were assume the superior position and say we alone are clinging to biblical truth. I want to say well with due respect I think I think the metaphorical grasp of truth here is probably a stronger one but please don't accuse those who don't see things literally as you do of somehow or other at abandoning the Bible. I, for one, have not abandoned the Bible at all. I believe a lot of the hard bits of the Bible, but I'm also free, I believe, to look at the Bible through the lens of what we now understand to be true and through the lens of understanding the Bible as a certain sort of literature. It can be poetry, it can be parable, it can be metaphor, prophecy, apocalyptic, and also sober historical narrative. You've been listening to LifeWords Q&A with David Ray. Thanks so much for your company. Please join us again next week as we discuss more questions with David Ray. <laughs> 